The Fitness Hacks Podcast, Episode 20. Today we're joined by Melody Schoenfeld. Welcome to the Fitness Hacks Podcast by Redefining Strength. Breaking down fitness and the fitness business with some of the best names in the industry. And here are your hosts, Corey Lefkowitz and Ryan Heenan. The creativity, I guess, comes in trying to figure out how to work with people within their own psychological limitations as well, not just physical. Melody stumbled into fitness and became a jack of all trades and now has owned flawless fitness for three years and even started evil monkey enterprises to start making maces and monkey bars and a whole bunch of different unconventional equipment. And Melody's very passionate about using these tools to not only build strength herself, but also to implement with routines with her clients. And while she likes playing around with things and testing things out and realizes that these tools can be fun, she likes to make sure that they're used for a specific purpose to help someone accomplish their goals more quickly. So let's jump into finding out how you use these tools to accomplish the goals more quickly and get to our interview with Melody. Melody, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your background and your fitness journey and what led to your passion for fitness? Yeah, uh, you know, my my background was not athletic at all. Um, I grew up in a, in a house where athletes were not valued. Um, you know, it was fine if you wanted to go outside and play, uh, or whatever, but it wasn't pushed in my family at all. It was, it was academics, 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 and that's it. So we were supposed to be scholars. We were not supposed to be athletes. Um, and, uh, and so I didn't grow up with those kind of values at all, um, and I was really bad at sports, too. I was terrible at everything, um, except dancing. I was pretty good at dancing. I have some rhythm, so um, I did ballet classes, and um, and those went pretty well. Um, but I wasn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have called myself a prima ballerina or anything like that. Um, but I ended up, uh, I ended up getting into this because my brother Brad um, had opened a gym. And I was an advertising executive right out of college, and I was barely making any money, and I needed a job on the side. And so he uh, he hired me. He taught me how to do the exercises and how to teach them, um, and he would program them all for me to give to his clients. Um, and I felt like a hack because I was like, look, I'm, I'm not doing this, so I shouldn't be teaching it. So I started doing it, and that's really how I got into it. Um, and then I, I just kind of discovered that I loved it. So I was a little late in the game. <laughs> I think so many of us do, though, sort of come into this realizing after doing something else, even that we, you know, we have a passion for the fitness. We really want to do that. You know, when you started training, I know you've done the strongman now and the powerlifting. What did your routine originally look like? Originally, it was just whatever my brother was having his clients do. I was just trying to replicate it. Uh, so I was using I was doing a lot of machines and I was doing, you know, kind of light dumbbell work and stuff like that. Um, and it, it kind of started to change uh, when I met different people. So, for instance, I took a, a learning annex class, of all things, about flexibility. And it was, um, it was, it was taught by a guy named Pavel Tatsulin who uh, people may have heard of. He uh, is pretty much the guy who brought kettlebells to the U.S. Um, and I had never heard of him, but I wanted to take a flexibility class and it was cheap, so I took it. Um, and the thing that interested me was not Pavel. The thing that interested and don't tell Pavel I said that, but the thing that interested me was his assistant, who was a guy named Mike Mahler. And Mike was a huge 
strong as an ox vegan. And I'm a vegan. I've been vegan for almost 17 years now. And, um, and I was really interested in what he was doing. I was like, I don't know who he is or what he's doing, but whatever it is, I want to do it too. And so that's how I got into kettlebells. I went and took his workshop and, uh, and then got into kettlebells. And through the kettlebell community, I met a guy named Bud Jeffries, who was a performing strongman. And Bud was like, why are you not powerlifting with the kind of strength you have in your deadlift? And I just learned how to do a deadlift, and I didn't know I was that good at it. Um, and he kind of was my impetus for all the other stuff I do. I think it's really interesting that you went from that advertising into fitness. Was that sort of the moment or the time period when you realized you wanted to transition into a career in fitness? Was it taking these workshops and transitioning into the powerlifting? Well, what happened was I, I took the workshops after after I had transitioned over. Um, what happened was I wanted to be a musician. Um, and that's all I'd ever wanted to be. And I, you know, I wanted to be, you know, I guess an actress for a little while, but I, I wanted a music is my, my big thing. And I wanted to be a musician and I was pretty sure I wasn't going to ever get to be one professionally. So I was just taking jobs. You know, I was in elementary education and Italian major in college. And I discovered through that, that I did not want to be a teacher. Um, but I, uh, but I did, uh, want to do something uh, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Um, so I went into advertising because I got the job. That was the only reason I took the job. I, I, uh, I just got the job and then I, I hated it. Um, and, uh, so I took the next thing that came along, which was a, I worked, uh, at a law firm and the law firm was a music firm. So I took that job thinking I would maybe make contacts in music, which that's not how that works, by the way, in case you're wondering. Um, so that was a pretty miserable job too. And so I left that and I decided, well, you know, I like to draw. Maybe I could be in, <laughs> maybe I could work my way up in an architecture firm <laughs> was my logic, which, you know, that's how that works, of course. Um, so I, uh, I started out as a, an assistant in an architecture firm thinking I could work my way up and become a, an architect. And uh, I realized very quickly that that wasn't going to happen and that that was not the job for me either. Um, so I, left that and I just came upon a, a testing for a computer consultant job. And I didn't know much about computers um, or anything, but I was like, yeah, screw it. I'll take a test. So I took the test. Apparently I did really well on it. They called me in for an interview like the next day. They interviewed me for like four hours and I became a computer consultant. And I was a computer consultant for four and a half years. And, um, then September 11th happened. And when September 11th happened, I was living in Chicago, but I'm from New York. And I had just been there. I had just been there that weekend looking up at the towers. And I had just flown back and I was on a night shift um, job for the company where I was, I was monitoring systems overnight. And I had fallen asleep with the radio on and I found out uh, that the towers were gone. And something like that really makes you reevaluate your priorities. Um, and, and what you want to do with your life. And I, you know, I was a computer consultant making money for rich people and not really helping anybody. And all I've ever wanted to do is help somebody um, and make a difference somehow. And this wasn't it. But the whole time I'd been doing that, I'd been doing the training on the side. And what I realized was I wanted to be doing that. And I wanted to, I needed to re reprioritize my life. And it just so happened that my company laid off 5,000 people around that time. 
and my project team was all let go. And so I was like, all right, what do I want to be doing and where do I want to be doing it? And at the time I was dating somebody who lived in Los Angeles. I moved to Los Angeles to be with him and I started training at a big box gym and the rest is history. Can you take us a little bit through how, you know, you started building that client base once you moved out here to opening Flawless Fitness, which now is celebrating three years. Congratulations. Thank you. Yay. Um, Well, you know, I started training at big box gyms. I started at one place that the management changed four times in the two months that I was there and they were really kind of shady. And, um, and then I also was working at another big box gym, um, a fancy one. I don't want to like throw names out there, so I'm not gonna, but it was a fancy one. And, um, the, when I started there, I, I did really well. I was getting like trainer of the month and I was doing all the stuff. I was pulling down clients left and right. People really wanted to train with me and it was really cool. And then, uh, some guy came in as a trainer and started trying to steal my clients. Um, and then he ended up becoming the manager and basically had a vendetta against me and made it so that the job was so miserable for me and that, um, just basically made it so I couldn't get clients. He was telling people that I wasn't taking them if they asked for me and stuff like that. So I decided to quit and my clients were all like, well, we're going with you. So I was really lucky because I left and my clients, about 95% of my clients left with me. Um, and, uh, and so I started renting space from other people. So I had, you know, my clients and then I just started, um, you know, through word of mouth mostly is how I built my business. I haven't really done a lot of advertising. Um, so I think that's a powerful story of how you went kind of from point A to point B and, most people that get into the fitness industry want to help people. But I think you have that element too, that you're obviously very creative between the art and the music. Do you find that fitness is a good platform to be able to use, you know, kind of your creative outlet to create programs and and do certain things? Well, you know, I, I feel that the fitness part is, is pretty scientific. Um, and, and it's, I think there's a lot of science that goes along with that. Um, for me, I just find the human body absolutely fascinating and how the parts work together and how, you know, and I guess the creative part comes in when you get people with limitations or people with real specific goals, um, and things like that. And then you get to be creative in how you are going to get them to reach their goals while managing the limitations that they might have. Um, but fitness in and of itself and nutrition, which are very fascinating subjects for me, um, it's it's real scientific and and it's a very growing field and it's always you know the science is always changing and that's i guess part of what makes it really interesting to me is is seeing seeing it develop but the the creative aspect of it i think is more in figuring out how to deal with people within their limitations and also you know you get some people who have you know it's it's a psychological issue where some people do not like to be told what to do. Some people do really well with competition. Some people hate competition. And, you know, and basically, and some people, you know, I've had clients who the very idea of changing anything about their diet would bring them to tears. Um, so the creativity, I guess, comes in trying to figure out how to work with people within their own psychological limitations as well, not just physical, you know? I totally agree. It's, it- 
every new person that comes into the gym is a new problem to be solved, someone new to work with, uh, a new experience, both dealing with them emotionally and also physically. And it, it's very, it's fun. It's exciting. It allows you to be creative, but yes, using those foundational basics, those, uh, the scientific knowledge that you have of the body. Do you think that there's any point at which you can learn too much or maybe at which you didn't learn enough and so you ran into problems and needed to get more education to help your clients? I don't think there's ever such a thing as not enough edu- or, or too much education. Um, I'm always pursuing more education. I do think the quality of the education is problematic because a lot of the stuff that's out there is questionable. Um, so it's it's knowing who to get the education from. Um, what sources to get your education from. But yeah, I'm always, always seeking out new answers because there's always a, a new problem I haven't addressed before um, or a new way of looking at things. And that's actually why I got my master's degree in health psychology um, was because I was coming across so many people with with roadblocks as far as addressing their health issues and addressing their dietary issues. Um, that was really, really interesting to me. So I wanted to pursue it further. Um, and then I wanted to go for the PhD. And then I realized that that would make me insane. So I I need a break. (laughs) Can you chat a little bit more about how you deal with your clients and maybe the mental roadblocks? Because I think the mental aspect of fitness is such a big deal and we don't talk about it enough. We get very caught up in learning new equipment, uh, new movements, but we don't necessarily learn new techniques to deal with the mental side of fitness, the mental side of life in general. Well, I think people get so caught up in trying to get their clients to do what they in their head feel that they should be doing. You know what I'm saying? Like, well, it's, I mean, you just eat less and you exercise more and it's really simple. Just do that. Um, that's not a simple answer for most people, I think. Um, and sometimes people just kind of need to know that you're on their side and, and, and that's just really the first step. And it's not necessarily that, you know what, I'm going to make you, I'm going to make you do this. I'm going to make you do that. If you're not ready to make a change in your diet, you're not ready to make a change in your exercise plan. Maybe you just kind of need, need to just walk, walk with somebody for a little while or, you know, it's everybody's, everybody's in a different place. Um, but I think, I think the most important thing is the support network. And I feel like that's my biggest role is being the support network for whatever it is that person needs. So, you know, if you look at what, what helps people maintain um, some sort of a health protocol. The biggest thing is having a support network. And a lot of people don't have one at home. So for instance, maybe they're a single mom or maybe their uh, their spouse is not supportive of what they're trying to do. Um, or maybe they, um, maybe their friends aren't supportive of what they're trying to do and they, you know, take them out drinking all the time, you know? Um, so the key is trying to find a network that is supportive of what it is that you are trying to do. And so I try to be that for everybody in whatever capacity that is. Um, and, and at least it's one person and then maybe we can try to create a community of more people for them, you know? So to me, that's the biggest first step. A hundred percent agree. I think accountability support are they're key to achieving success because they help you be consistent. They help you be consistent and consistency is really key. You know, you, you've dabbled in so many different things. You know, you really take care of the mental aspect with your clients, but you also do have the freedom to be a little bit more creative with your programs because I know you've done so much. You work with the mace, you work with kettlebells. Heck, heck, you even make maces mm-hmm. with Evil Monkey Enterprises. Can you even talk a little bit more about starting that second business to then how it maybe helped you with your clientele? 
It's funny because I always just I I really like the mace, um, and when I started using it, I kind of feel like I may have been the only woman doing it. I never saw another woman swing the mace before. Um, and this was years and years ago. Um, and I, and I had it in my head that I wanted to create one that was water fillable and stuff, but I didn't, you know, I don't know how to weld and I don't have time to go learn how to weld. <laughs> um, and then it just so happened that I met a welder and he kind of took a look at it and he was like, I could make that. <laughs> and, uh, and then he was like, and, and it's funny because he had said to me, he was like, do you really think you can sell these things? And I was like, I really do think that I can sell these things because they're amazing. And if you do a great job with them, then we'll definitely sell them. And he does, he's an aerospace welder and he does an amazing job with them. Um, and what's funny is he started out never having seen anything like it before. He uses it all the time now. And he's like, yeah, I got to make a bigger one for myself now because I outgrew that one. And, um, and he's always coming up with new designs for him now which is really cool. Um, he, uh, he's like, Oh, you got to see this new thing. And every time we go somewhere where, where he sees something around, he's like, we got to make a mace out of that. <laughs> it's pretty funny. Um, but yeah, I started it. Uh, I had the idea for the longest time and I just needed the right person to connect with, to make it a reality for me. What were some of the challenges you had? I know he mentioned, are you really going to try to sell this? I mean, I'm sure there were logistical challenges too, between shipping something that heavy and awkward in terms of shape. Yeah, well, that's, I guess, the biggest complaint I get is people respond and go, I had no idea this was going to cost this much to ship. Well, if you ship a six foot object, it's not going to be cheap. Um, so, I, you know, I don't really know what to say to that. I'm like, I don't, I don't know what you thought it was going to cost, but I'm sorry, you know. Um, the other problem is because I'm a very small two person business, I can't benefit from bulk shipping rates. And, uh, and I can't, and I'm absolutely not going to get my stuff mass produced in China or anything like that. We do everything here on site and, um, and that's the only way I'd ever do it. Um, so there's a lot of benefits to being a little, you know, two person thing where you're doing everything yourself, but there's some drawbacks too, because there's, uh, other companies that make maces real cheaply and, and ship them really cheaply because they can do it in bulk and they have all of these people making them for them so they can do it fast. They can do it cheap. We're kind of at the mercy of how long it takes our paint department to get it done or, you know, whether or not the steel has come in at our steel supplier, that kind of thing. So sometimes it takes way longer than I want it to. Um, and I give discounts, you know, when it, when that happens and stuff like that. And I've, you know, when somebody yelled at me for the shipping, I ate the shipping costs for him and stuff like that. But at the end, I'm kind of like, you ordered a six foot object in the mail, <laughs> you know? So, yeah. So there, there are definitely some plus sides, um, and, and negatives and I don't really make hardly any money off of it. I just really enjoy I really enjoy having them made. I think they're really cool. Have you found that there's been sort of like an educational process you've had to go through, like educating your clients with using the mace and even just the general fitness community? I mean, I've seen it around a little bit more, but I feel like it's still a very like niche product. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I actually am going to be um, speaking about them for the NSCA uh, in two weeks in Florida at the PT conference. So I'm going to be doing a whole presentation on clubs, maces, and Bulgarian bags. Um, and then uh, I actually just resubmitted uh, an article that's hopefully going to be published in the strength and conditioning journal um, about the about these objects as well. So, you know, fingers crossed. But yeah, so, you know, it's, it's, it's an education process, but uh, it's, I, there's, um, there's some really good people out there uh, spreading the word and who really understand how they work. And, um, 
there's a guy named Paul Wokolinski. Uh, if you want to know anything about any of these instruments, that is the person I will go to. He is amazing. He travels all over the world um, learning about these things, and he has made it his kind of mission in life to learn everything there is to know about these objects, and he has a fantastic website. He's uh, out of Australia, and uh, if you really, really want to have a good education on this stuff, that's the guy that I would look at is Paul Wokolinski. There was the first competition, too, correct, at Mr. Olympia this year? There have been a couple of them now. Yeah. Um, we actually sponsored all the Mesas for the one that happened at um, Texas Kettlebell Academy. That happened on September 4th, and there was one at, I believe, the Mr. Olympia, and then I think there was one in New Jersey earlier this year, too. So it's pretty cool seeing that happen out here. We were talking with Josh Hankin a little bit ago about, you know, tools and people calling them toys and sort of treating them just as sort of interchangeable objects. And with you speaking on all these different pieces of equipment and the ways that you can really get benefit from them, could you maybe tell our listeners a little bit about how each of the tools can be used for a specific goal and that it's important not to just, you know, throw them around just for the fun of it? Well, you know, I, I, I use that word tool because when it comes down to it, everything is just a tool and, and you use your tools to help you do whatever it is you're trying to do. So maybe you don't need to do these things. Um, but I do find that they're useful for most people. So for instance, I had a client who had nerve damage in his neck where he could not lift his arm above his head. He could not brush his hair. He had, um, a tremendous atrophy in that arm. Um, and so we just started doing some, first we just started doing it without the clubs and then we added the club movements, the light club movements. And after about four or five months, he pressed an eight pound weight over his head for reps. And uh, it was really, really cool. And that was basically what we're doing. I had him doing that and I had him doing some kind of uh, mobility exercises up and down the wall with his fingers. Um, and uh, just those together, he was able to press a weight that he never, he couldn't lift a hairbrush, let alone a weight. So it was really cool. So I believe, you know, the, it, the science on these things is not out there. There's no science right now. Um, so that's the problem. So being able to say definitively, absolutely, this is what it does. Um, I can't say that because we don't have any evidence and I'm a science person. And so I have to say, you know, if there was evidence, then we can say at least with reasonable doubt, whether or not this does this, um, but you were finding a creative solution to use a tool that helped you accomplish a goal more quickly in your opinion, or at least mm -hmm. in that situation more quickly than you would have elsewhere. So it was, yeah. it was using an instrument with a purpose, knowing that you can accomplish something for the person and their end goal. Yeah. And what was really interesting about that was that I was doing the exercises with him every time and my bench press went up and that was the only thing I was doing differently. My bench press went up a lot. Um, so can I say for sure it was the clubs? No, but that's the only thing I was doing differently. So for me, it made a huge difference in my bench press. So that would be a really interesting research point to me um, to see if that was just a, a fluke or not. Um, martial artists use them a lot. They do seem to increase flexibility in the shoulder joint. And I've found that basically I'll measure people's ability to touch their hands behind their back before and after using the clubs. And almost every single time there's a huge difference in flexibility where they'll be able to, you know, gain an inch or more of flexibility after using that. And for martial artists, they use them a lot to develop coordination, strength, power, and flexibility as well. Um, and depending on how heavy the clubs are, and the clubs originated as a wrestler's uh, tool. 
And that's, that's where they're used the most is for wrestling. Um, they do increase grip strength. They increase, you know, and they, they get you out of regular planes of motion. So, cause they're all over the place with the planes of motion that you would use them. And especially the lighter ones, the heavier ones, the range of motion is much more limited. Um, but yeah, it's, there's, um, for racket sports, anything, you know, like pitchers, things like that, keeping the integrity of the shoulder joint, I would hazard a guess that those would be extremely useful for building that. Um, if you look at the exercises that they found to be useful for, um, creating strength and power in the shoulder joint for, um, overhead athletes, the, uh, a lot of the club movements kind of mimic those. And so for people trying to increase their shoulder integrity for overhead athletes, that would be a very useful exercise as well. I think, you know, it's, it's, I hate saying it because I don't have any proof. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's plenty of observational evidence. There's know, a lot of observational evidence. So exactly. if you were a trainer at a big box gym who, you know, starting to get in functional fitness is becoming a little bit more mainstream. What would be a good starting point to get into learning about some of these tools? Well, you know, like I said, Paul Wokowinski, uh, his website is a fantastic um, resource for all things clubs and mace. Um, I highly, highly, highly recommend looking him up. Um, I think his website is indianclubs.com. I have to look it up. But anyway, he, he's a phenomenal resource for this stuff because he has researched it inside and out. Um, so that's where I would start. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of video, uh, really cool video, a lot of it taken by Paul, actually, of how the clubs are used in India um, in, the, in, the, in the competitions out there and stuff. So it's, it's pretty cool to see them in action as well. But, you know, like I said, it is a tool. So you don't have to use it in the traditional manner. You can use it any way that seems to make sense for your goals. Or if you just feel like playing around with something and messing around with it. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with playing in the gym. If you're not hurting yourself, why not play? You know, I play with stuff all the time, um, especially on my off days. Like I just really like playing around with stuff. I'm just like, oh, can I make this do this and can I do that? I don't think there's anything wrong with, with that. Um, but for the most part, if it fits your – if it fits your goals, it helps you get where you're trying to go. You can do whatever you want with it. It's really just a weighted object. It's an irregular weighted object. So, you know. I think it's great that you like to play because I definitely like to play around too. It's how we learn. It's how we learn to integrate things that we've already learned, the old basics. It's how we create new things. It's how we're innovative. I also like that you pointed out that you tested out what you were using because I think in this day and age, a lot of times people will post workouts or just string together exercises and won't necessarily test out how they feel, especially mm -hmm. trainers. And they'll end up creating these workouts that just slaughter clients or don't really have any direction. They just picked exercises. How, mm -hmm. how often would you say that you test out programs before you give them to clients or even exercises before you give them to clients? I don't give anything to anyone that, has, that I haven't tested. Um, period. Uh, if, if it's, um, you know, I, I don't just do give people stuff because it looks cool <laughs> or anything like that. So most of the stuff I do, I, you know, I hate to call it boring, but most of the stuff I do is relatively boring in the, in the context of things. You know, it's, it's a lot of deadlifting and a lot of squats and presses and, you know, different planes of motion, things like that. But it's nothing that I think anyone would go in and go like, Oh, that looks awesome. Because for the most part, it's just basic human movement. Um, but I find that most people don't have the capacity for basic human movement and you have to start there, you know? 
I don't think that's boring at all. Those are some of my favorite movements. So I, I 100% agree. Mm-hmm. So with all of the equipment that you're sort of using, even creating, and the fact that you like the basics, uh, where do you see the future of fitness? Hmm. You know, right now it seems that everything is kind of going back to old school stuff, uh, which is, I think it's great because I love old school. That's where I've been forever. <laughs> um, but a lot of the old time strongman stuff is starting to get, uh, get a lot of attention, which is really cool. Um, the mace is becoming more and more popular and all of these ancient tools that people used, um, you know, many, many years ago, uh, they're coming back now. It's very cool. And seeing what, um, Ed Thomas has done for the Indian club resurgence is, is really awesome. Um, I don't know if you know much about Ed Thomas, but he's kind of responsible for bringing Indian clubs back into the mainstream. And he was, um, he's using them in the school districts in Iowa. Um, and what he's doing out there is really, really cool. If you have any interest in seeing what Indian clubs can do, see what he's doing out in Iowa with those clubs. Very, very cool. Well, now that you've answered all the easy questions, it's time for the hard questions in a segment we call the uh, Fast Five Fitness Facts, where we're going to ask you five questions and you can do your best to give us an answer. You ready? I'm ready. What's your favorite exercise? That crap. Uh, <laughs> I hate that question because I, I like a lot of them. Uh, I think pull-ups are weighted pull-ups. Yeah. But I also really like bending and tearing stuff, so that's a really close second. <laughs> Both very valid and great exercises. Mm-hmm. And to transition to question number two, what exercise do you hate but love at the same time? Dragon flags. I love them, but they hurt for like four days later. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely a full core exercise. Yeah. What's the best book you've ever read? Alice in Wonderland. Wow. I have to ask why. I read that book about a million times when I was a kid, I never, I, ne- I, I, <laughs> I think I read it once a week when I was a kid. There was something about that book series that really captivated me. Um, I, it captured my imagination, that whole idea of going into a whole nother world. Um, and all these magical creatures was really interesting to me. So, uh, yeah, that's probably the best book I've ever read. <laughs> I like that answer. <laughs> I do too. I think that's the first non-business slash motivational book that we've had but, but it's such a great book it's the best book the whole that and through the looking glass they're the best book. now i need now i need to go get them and read them again <laughs> yeah i remember reading through the looking glass in college and hate to be punny but like opened my eyes you know like yeah it's like, so such tricky. a great read yeah totally like I i've never done a drug in my life but i would imagine that's what it's like <laughs> <laughs> just open the book that's all you need to do exactly <laughs> And next question, what is your favorite pump-up song? I'm a metal girl. I'm, I, you know, I, and uh, if, I, if Man of War or, or uh, Halloween or Iron Maiden is, uh, is playing, I'm, I'm, I'm probably pumped. <laughs> and if you could train with one person, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Oh, probably the Mighty Adam. You, he, it's he's, crazy. Uh, You're not the first person to say that, but I want to hear your reason why. He's one of my my strength idols. He was amazing, um, and he, you know, he he was the sickly little boy who became one of the strongest men pound for pound in the world. And the stuff that he's done, like I love doing the old time strongman stuff, and so he's one of my one of my idols for sure. Um, there were some pretty amazing strong women 
who their names have never really come to light. There have been some amazing strong women from that era as well, who I would have loved to have met and, uh, and trained with as well, because, you know, those women, that was not the norm at all for anybody, but especially for a woman, it was not thought well of to be strong. So, um, some of those strong women who just kind of defied what everything, everything a woman was supposed to be. I think that's, I would love to have met some of them. That's so great. I, I know when I look at those pictures, too, I'm just like, ah, oh, I just want to beast mode it up right now. They're so inspirational. And it's it's funny, too, that they broke these stereotypes. And it's taken us so long now to really get women back in the weight room lifting heavy weights. Yeah, and it's still a little taboo for most women. Do you think that will ever change? Uh, I think it is changing. I think it's cultural, you know. Um, like for instance, I have a client who's Armenian and her mom was yelling at her to stop training with me because she was getting too muscular. <laughs> so yeah, stuff like that. She's like, Oh, you're getting muscles. Stop it. <laughs> How about one more melody exclusive question? What's in your CD player or I guess maybe your iPhone on in rotation right now? Well, right now, Madonna songs are in rotation because I, uh, I have a gig coming up and I'm in a band where we do. Uh, heavy metal versions of Madonna. That's what I was going to say. So, I hope it's heavy metal versions. Yeah, we <laughs> do heavy go metal go against all things metal. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's what's, uh, that's what's in there right now. And this other song I'm trying to learn. <laughs> well, Melody, thank you so much. Can you sort of tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah, well, I'm very Facebookable <laughs> and, uh, and Instagrammable. And I'm also at flawlessfitness.com or evilmonkey.com, which, uh, well, it's evilmonkey.com. Uh, dot com. So it's M-U-N-K-Y, evilmonkeyent.com. Well, great, Melody. Thanks so much again for joining us. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fitness Hacks podcast by Redefining Strength. For the show notes and more episodes, visit redefiningstrength.com.